All right, so I am the proud grandparent of two hamsters as of yesterday. <laughs> My six-year-old fed the dog for 10 days straight without complaining, so I spent $190 on a ham two hamsters in a cage. I would never have committed to a hamster if I had known how expensive it was gonna be. I delayed it for like several weeks and she just kept on reminding me. So then we couldn't only get one hamster for my six-year-old, my four-year-old son, gotta get him a hamster too. So now we have Peter and Jimmy Day, wait, what is it? Jimmy Woody. Those are our hamster's names, Peter and Jimmy Woody. My boy back here knows how to name a hamster, okay? My name is Wilson, one of the pastors here, and uh, more importantly, a father in this church of children and a husband of an amazing wife and a friend of people and a son of the founders of the church. But my name is Wilson, and uh, this morning we're going to keep going in Matthew. But first, I want to talk about person of peace for a minute. So we spent two weeks starting three weeks ago on this evangelism strategy that we've been getting hot on called the person of peace strategy. And really it's just a methodology that we think Jesus invented and commissioned his disciples to use to spread the gospel and to spread the kingdom of God on earth was to not just evangelize everyone, just share the gospel with everybody and blah, 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 blah. I mean, do share the gospel with everybody, but don't just be looking for everybody. Look for a person of peace. And our definition of that, if the slide can go up, is kind of twofold. A person of peace is someone who likes you, listens to you, and serves you. And then ultimately, a true person of peace receives the messenger, they receive the message, and they receive the mission. So we believe that Jesus, we don't believe, we just see in scripture that Jesus told his disciples to look for persons of peace. And, and then we see in the New Testament this pattern where Paul and the other early followers of Jesus would find someone who it seemed like was basically just ready to receive Jesus. They didn't have to do a lot of work. All they had to do was share about Jesus with them. And then that person would end up not only becoming a follower of Jesus, but hosting a church like in their home. And it would become a new like kingdom outpost for the gospel. And we just believe that there's a ton of people like that in Cincinnati that aren't a part of the church yet. And there's all these people in Cincinnati that are just like one share, just one conversation away from becoming a follower of Jesus who makes followers of Jesus. So I'm not gonna go deep into person of peace today. We'll spend more time throughout the rest of this church's existence talking about it. But we got some different questions and I just wanna make a couple of, I just wanna add a couple of quick clarifications because I really hope that um, as Luke and I talked about person of peace, we were igniting something in your heart and we were stirring something in you to where you're gonna actually put this mentality into practice. That you would hear a message on a Sunday morning and then you would take it and be like, okay, this is now how I approach evangelism. Is I'm looking for people who like me, listen to me and serve me and then I'm gonna invest in them. I'm gonna focus on them, focus on them. I'm gonna walk with them. So here's the, here's the, uh, First thing I wanna make clear that we're not saying about person of peace that would be very easy to misunderstand. Jesus makes this statement that's pretty direct and you could even say harsh. 
He says, if anyone doesn't receive you, shake the dust off of your feet and move on. So if someone doesn't prove to be a person of peace, don't stick around with them, but literally move on from them. Shake the dust off your feet. It's like, it's prophetic language for saying like, you're not my problem anymore. <laughs> it's kind of like the message Jesus is sending. So something we're not saying about person of peace, a misapplication of person of peace would be if you have a close friend in your life who is not a follower of Jesus and maybe doesn't even want to follow Jesus, shows no signs of being spiritually hungry or spiritually open, we're not saying that you should shake the dust off of your feet without relationship. We're not saying that the friend in your life who is really hurt by church or the family member who's never encountered Jesus before or the coworker who is clearly not interested in Christianity and Jesus, that you should like shun them. Well, they're not a person of peace, I'm moving on. You should stay in relationship with them. You should love them. We have the great commission to make disciples of all nations and we have the great commandment to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so I would even kind of like uh, propose that people in our life who show no signs of being a person of peace, show no signs of being spiritually open, if they like you and they are not saying, get away from me, I don't wanna see you again, then they're actually just a very, very, very early stage person of peace is how you should think of it. If they're not rejecting you, then you, you at least have someone who likes you and is receiving you. And listen to what Jesus says in Luke 10. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. So what Jesus is kind of saying is, if someone receives you, they could be in the process of receiving me. So if you have someone in your life who receives you and who likes you, really, they're liking the Jesus in you more than anything. I'm just gonna propose to you. As cool as all of us are, the thing they really like is the Jesus in us. And they just maybe have been hurt by church or they have a distorted perception of what Jesus is like. So they don't like the Jesus that they've seen over here, but they like the Jesus in you. So stay present in their life, pray for them, be with them, do share with them. Take conversations from simple to serious to spiritual and see what God does. So that's one point. A second thing that I think is so important to say that Luke and I failed to bring up when it comes to the person of peace strategy and evangelism and making disciples, and this is especially relevant for parents, okay? If you are a parent, I really believe that, and this is what God has spoken to me, the primary persons of peace in my life are my children. The main persons of peace, the main people in my life that I'm looking to turn into disciples who make disciples are my children. And if you have, I, I'm not in this boat yet, my kids are so young, but if your kids are, you know, maybe 10 or older, I just really encourage you to be thinking, what type of intentional discipleship program can I start to run with them? I have eight years, eight more years of them being under my thumb and under my control, and they have to sit down when I sit down and let's talk. And honestly, that probably stops around like 15 or something. But um, <laughs> man, like, what if you created a personalized curriculum that you walked your kids through of everything you want them to know about Jesus? 
of everything you want them to embody as a Christian. And you started walking them through that. And then on the flip side, I mean, on the flip side of that, when you have little kids, my encouragement, which is the situation I'm in, and um, I need lots of advice from others, okay? Like I'm experiencing it for the first time. But, but so far, one of the things that God's really spoken to me is being with my kids who are six, four, and two is just as spiritual as reading scripture. It's just as spiritual as lifting my hands to worship on Sunday mornings. It's just as spiritual as doing a 21-day fast. Playing with a four-year-old for 21 minutes is like doing a 21-day fast after a, after a exhausting day of emotional output and working and giving, 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 and then you come home and it's like, ah, like, I don't wanna pretend and follow you around right now. But when I do that, man, like, there is something being formed in me of Jesus. So when you're present, when you love little kids, when you stay present with them, when you walk with them, that is spiritual formation for you. And then the only way that kids are gonna be healthy someday, or, or the, the, what better way to set kids on a healthy path of love than to love them and to be present with them? So what greater thing can I do to make disciples than to love Haya really well and to buy her Peter the hamster? <laughs> what greater thing can I do for Silas than to just be present with him when he wants me to be present with him? So I just wanna encourage parents that don't feel like, oh man, I need to figure out some way to do all this evangelism, especially if your primary job is to be taking care of the kids, you know, like stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad. You are doing an amazing evangelistic work every single day just by being an amazing parent and present and loving your kids, okay? And last thing I'll say about this is we can't accidentally give up discipleship of our children to Northwest kids and to student revival. They are secondary and like way secondary to our influence as parents in their life. All right, so Jesus, um, will you teach us how to do this person of peace thing well? We wanna walk it out, oh man, Lord, we wanna see more people encounter your life and your light and get lit up with a gospel and become a gospel carrier and a, a gospel share, Lord. We wanna see people get that transformation, like the transformation we've received from you. So I pray right now for every person in this room, Will you lead them, Lord? Give them discernment and wisdom on who you are calling them to make into a disciple, who you are calling them to walk alongside of into becoming a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples of Jesus. Give us grace to do it, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so turn with me to Matthew 10. It'll be on the screen behind us as well. Matthew 10, 24. We're continuing in Jesus' admonitions about persecution. 1024, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house was called Beelzebul, Satan, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. 
What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. If you're bald, God doesn't know you. Just kidding. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So after meditating, I I meditated on this for the last several weeks as I was preparing for it, and I decided to do like a kind of point-by-point interpretation of the passage where I just wrote every verse out or every thought out into my own words. Um, and, and I'm calling this kind of like, this was me like reading between the lines, filling in the gaps so that it hit me like right off the bat. What's actually really being said here, you know? I don't, rather than trying to decode this, or this is how I decoded it, was by putting it in my own words after a lot of study and a lot of objective research of the passage. So here's my line by line, reading between the lines edition, okay? Following me, Jesus, means persecution and hatred from the world, not power and fame and wealth. The last thing the disciples are expecting to hear after they get their marching instructions for how to do evangelism is that they're going to be persecuted. They were anticipating an earthly political kingdom to be established in Israel, of which they would be the leaders of. They thought military conquest and power is gonna, is gonna follow me following Jesus, not suffering persecution and rejection. Becoming like me, Jesus, your role model, will be rewarding and painful at the same time. This is the next one. It will be rewarding and painful at the same time. This whole, no student is above his teacher, it's like, well, that's great, I wanna be just like my teacher, that, that's my goal, you know? but you don't think about all the downside of being like your teacher. <laughs> you know, like our teacher was crucified. That's the downside, you know, of becoming like your teacher. All, here's the next one. Although many won't accept or understand your message, a day will come when everyone will know it was true all along. Although many won't accept or understand your message, a day will come when everyone will know it was true all along. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. It's okay to be misunderstood. We will be vindicated someday. We will be understood someday. No matter how dangerous it is to proclaim that I alone am king or to proclaim the story of how I've impacted your life, do it and do it loud. No matter how dangerous it is to say, I'm loyal to Jesus above you. I'm loyal to Jesus above everything. Jesus says, do it and do it from the rooftops. He's not just like, do it when you get a chance. He's like, be violent about it, go after it. He says this, you may very well, well, I say this interpretation. You may very well be killed for the announcement about be the announcement about me you're going to be making. However, 
What does death even matter when eternal life is on the other side of your final heartbeat? What does death even matter when eternal life is on the other side of our last breath? We live so removed from death in our advanced society that death is like incredibly scary and horrible, you know? But Jesus is saying, look, death ain't that bad. <laughs> Paul said that to be apart from the body is to be with the Lord. Like it's a good thing what happens after we die. Not a bad thing. It'll be painful maybe while you die, but it's really good right after it. He says this, or I say this, live in sober awe of the fact that eternal life only comes for those who are faithful to me. My father, here's the next one, my father and your father sees and cares for the smallest details of his creation. In light of this, feel the love and then go and trust him. In light of this, feel the love. Let that impact you at a heart level. Don't just read past it. He knows the hairs of my head. He cares about little birds. What? I don't care about little birds, okay? God knows every hair on Jimmy Woody the hamster's body. <laughs> God cares about my kids' hamsters. He knows them. Like, there's nothing about them he doesn't understand and know, and he values the breath in their lungs. How much more does someone who cares about that care about us as image bearers? Lord, let your love just flood us. We carry so much stuff throughout the week, God, but right now, let your love flood us. Let truth flood us. Let, let what Micah said that we are in you, Father, and you are in us, that we're seated in heavenly places, Lord. Let that stand up in our spirits. Let us live from that place. And then here's the last one. The destruction of earth and judgment of all of humanity will come one day. If you've chosen anything above me, then you've opted out of my father's family. The destruction of earth and judgment of all of humanity will come one day. This is the reality that the Bible teaches. The world and history is going somewhere. It will end with finality at some point. It's not just this circular mess that kind of continues until the next iPhone is invented. Like, humanity will end. And Jesus will come back as a judge. And those who have put their allegiance in him will be welcomed into the kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. But those who have never given allegiance to him, and then this is tough, man, but Jesus is saying, like, if you choose to disown me, you're opting out of being in my family. And if you choose to, look, let's hear that. that. I hate that. We all hate to hear that. That feels very uncool and unfair and unkind, right? But this is truth. Amen. This is truth. No matter how it makes us feel, no matter our sensibilities or whatever, this is truth. So like, before I make a value judgment on Jesus disowning those who disown him, let's just say it's true. Let's start there. And then let's look at the gracious, amazing example of Jesus and Peter. Peter denied Jesus in the flesh three times, and Peter was restored. So Jesus isn't saying, like, if one time you reject me, you're done. He's saying, if you make the choice to stop following me, and that's your new trajectory in life, and you live that out, 
you're no longer in my family. I'm, I'm gonna let you leave my family. So, as I, as I read this whole passage and as I meditate on all this, one of the ways that I feel like we can make it really relevant for us today because we're not necessarily facing the same immediate circumstances that these guys were facing when he gave them these instructions. One of the ways that we can make this relevant for us today is to apply what I think to be kind of the spirit, the underlying message of what Jesus is saying here. Like Jesus is giving real instructions to real people at a real point in time. So if it misses us, that's because we're not those people at that point in time in those circumstances. But that doesn't mean that the Spirit of God won't still speak to us through these words today. That's what it means the Scripture is God-breathed, is that even though, like, nothing in here was written actually directly to you, with you in mind, by a human at least, like the Holy Spirit probably knew, this, it's God-breathed. God breathes on it, and, and we can interpret it. We can do the work of interpretation and then applying it to our life. So as I interpret this passage, one of the things I think Jesus is doing is dealing with fear in his disciples' lives. He's addressing the fear that they are no doubt beginning to feel and experience as Jesus gives them all these, um, these warnings and admonitions. In verses 26 to 31, he says three times, do not be afraid. So how can we respond to fear is the question I wanna answer for the rest of the time. More specifically, I'm just gonna tell you how I try and how I aspire to respond to, to responding to fear in my life. You know that the Bible says over a hundred times that, ex that pretty much that exact statement, do not be afraid or do not fear. And then well over, well over 200 more times, it gives an admonition that isn't using those words, do not be afraid, but is speaking to fear itself. Have you ever seen those cool little devotionals? It's like, the Bible says, do not be afraid 365 times. So this is your great 365 daily reminders, you know? It's incorrect, like the Bible doesn't say, do not be afraid 365 times, but it speaks to how to respond to fear well over 365 times. It says, it tells us and with an abundance how to respond to fear. How do we respond to fear? It, this, this admonition, do not be afraid, was said to Moses and the escaped Israelite slaves as they're fleeing Egypt. And they get to the Red Sea and there's a whole army behind them. And God says to Moses, tell the people, do not be afraid. It was said to Joshua as he succeeds Moses, as he leads Israel into the promised land to conquer all these giants. <laughs> the number of the instruction that Joshua keeps getting is, do not be afraid. Esther, when she had the chance to petition the king and to prevent genocide, but it was risking her life to go before the king without the king asking her to come, an ancient Jewish queen um, in, the, in the Babylonian Empire. It was said to her, do not be afraid. What did the angel Gabriel say to Mary when he appeared to her? Do not be afraid. And then what really rocks my world is to think that I think even Jesus, while he was on earth, 
had to hear these same scriptures. These scriptures to Joshua and throughout the Psalms, Jesus actually applied them to his life when he confronted fear, when he felt like bad, when he felt fear, okay? So before we look at my example of Jesus experiencing fear, um, I wanna point out that I think if we just hear this phrase, do not be afraid, it can sound, sound kind of harsh. It can sound kind of like, do not feel emotion. Do not be a human, you know, is like what we can hear. But I think what we see in the life of Jesus is that there's a difference between experiencing fear and actually living in fear. Between experiencing fear and walking out life in fear, controlled by fear, dominated by fear, where fear is like a pair of glasses you put on and you walk around and you see um, life through that lens. So this isn't gonna be on the screen, but if you got your Bible, turn to Matthew 25. Actually, Matthew 26. So Jesus knows he's about to be crucified. He gets his boys together. He's like, let's pray. Pray for me that I'm strong and that I can do this thing. And, he, and this is what it says. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus was sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then skipping down to verse 42. Or, no, my bad. Um, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he goes and prays, then he goes and finds his disciples asleep. And he, he says, come on guys, pray with me. And then verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back again, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away one more, once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. So I just wanna to propose to you that Jesus was so racked with fear, with the experience of I do not want to do this thing. Father, please take this cup from me. This, like, this isn't what I want to do. The three times he's praying that. And so he's experiencing I think Jesus is experiencing fear in this moment. But the turning point for Jesus is the second half of his prayers. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Yet not as I will, but as you will. May your will be done. So Jesus felt it, but he didn't make decisions based off of it or live out of it. So the goal for us isn't to not feel fear, not to experience fear. The goal is that we don't live out of fear, that we don't make decisions based out of fear. In other words, I think that even Jesus experienced fear, but he didn't walk in it or live in it. How could he relate to every temptation that is common to mankind unless he also felt the temptation we feel of living in fear? So here's how I would define, here's how I would explain experiencing fear versus walking in fear or living in fear. Experiencing fear 
is partially just a chemical reaction in our bodies. It's partially just hormones being sent off. Like, we are hardwired to have fight or flight go on. Like, that's part of just our human nature is to experience fear. Um, more typically, it's our mind anticipating an undesirable outcome. It's our mind saying, yikes, I see pain and sadness coming. Let's avoid that. <laughs> so experiencing fear, though, is momentary. And maybe it's going to feel like many, many long moments, but it's not like the way that we live. Could you take this slide down, actually? I'm going to get there in just a second. So the bottom line is this. Experiencing fear, what I'm talking about, is experiencing an emotion. Sorry, Justin. I'll let you get a picture of it in a minute, bro. <laughs> Saw someone taking their camera off. <laughs> um, when, I'm, when we're talking about experiencing fear, we're talking about experiencing an emotion. The other day, my daughter was trying to get a bagel out of the uh, toaster, and she stuck a knife right in there. And I was like, ah! <laughs> no! <laughs> Like, she stopped, she didn't get electric or anything. I was like, please don't do that. Like, I know I tell you not to do things a lot every day, but this is one time where I'm just asking you to please not do that again, okay? Like, that was, I was experiencing fear. That was good, that was normal. Whereas walking in fear, living in fear, we're talking about here is a groove in our brain, like a physiological groove in our brain where there's a thought pattern that's been developed. There's a way that we process. It's a frequent, if not constant, way of thinking about decisions and understanding life. Oftentimes, it's rooted in unaddressed trauma within us, an unresolved, horrible experience that we haven't um, gotten the healing or that we haven't received healing for. And what living in fear looks like, it's when our default is, yikes, pain and sadness is coming. And so now I'm going to make decisions based off of that. Whatever it takes to avoid this imminent threat or discomfort or pain, even decisions that are irrational, which we'll never know that they're irrational in the moment because we're flooded with fear and we're, we've, we are, are walking in it now. We're making decisions based off of it. Illustrations I was thinking of for um, so the bottom line, living in fear isn't a momentary experience. It's a way of thinking. Living in fear isn't a momentary experience. We're trying, to, we're trying to juxtapose here the experience of an emotion versus the pattern of living, of living in fear. I'm thinking about times I've lived in fear. The first really hard breakup I ever went through. Girl I thought I was gonna marry, a girl I loved. I was like racked with depression for so long and part of the, the thing in there, like a year of just like I could not get over her was that I, I really believed I was never gonna find someone better than her in my youth and in my inexperience in life, you know, I just thought like, there will never be another person like this. And I started to walk in fear, like it was, it was controlling me. Um, I was thinking about, my wife and I have had a couple miscarriages. And if anyone's experienced that, you know how painful it is to have a miscarriage. But then when you get pregnant after a miscarriage, it's like really exciting, but it can also be very terrifying. Because like, oh no, is this going to happen again? And it's like a temptation to begin to just kind of walk and live in fear. I think that some of the greatest, like, you know, crimes against humanity or just like terrible things that have happened in history all actually came back to someone who was living in fear. Whether that was like Hitler in fear of the influence of Jews on, on Germany and the fear of a, uh, a less pure people or whatever he thought. 
where did that lead him, you know? I think that, um, like, the pro-choice movement, a big part of it is, in, is thinking, I don't want women to lose rights. I'm afraid of women losing rights. Like, I'm afraid of that, so I'm going to do anything I can to protect women's rights. It's like a, there's like a fear there that's controlling that. You think if, if you saw the, uh, the guys that stormed the Capitol building, the Proud Boys leaders, they were just sentenced this week to prison terms. What was beneath that? Fear. <laughs> fear of the guy becoming president. They didn't want to become president. Fear of the impact that they thought that president would have on our country. Fear of a changing nation. Fear was at the root of those actions. So when we feel fear, that's okay. When we experience fear, that's just being human. But when we begin to make decisions, and we begin to live out in, in a pattern where fear is the lens and the worldview that we're thinking through, that's when we're in trouble. That's when we need a rescuer. That's when we need a deliverer. That's when we need help to break out of that pattern and get healing in our mind. So God, give us grace to do that. We cannot do that without you. We cannot do that without you, Lord. Will you release grace over us to identify where we live in fear and, and to free us from it, Lord? Will you point out to us right now in this moment where we're blinded to the places that we actually live in fear rather than in love and in trust? So here's my bottom line slides for you now, okay? Can you put the slide up, Denise? Experiencing fear is neutral and even healthy. But living in fear is destructive to our souls and harms our apprenticeship to Jesus. It's really important we know this. We should not feel shame for our emotions. That's like the biggest double bind, and that's just the devil straight up, when you feel shame for feeling a certain way. But you gotta ask yourself. Exactly, and that's exactly where I'm gonna go with this, is we need to see, identify it when we're living in fear so we can address the circumstances. By the way, if anyone has thoughts, just bring it up. Come on, like, let's go, I wanna talk, all right? Um, so experiencing fear is neutral, even healthy. It means that we're not a sociopath. That's what it means, okay? When you feel. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, that I am not a sociopath, is the prayer you can start to pray. But when you live in fear, you're being pulled away from the life flow of the kingdom of God. You're being pulled away from the life flow of Jesus. And you're actually being destroyed slowly. You start to embody it. You start to put it into your body and put actions out there that are based off of fear rather than God's presence and his life and his love. And it destroys you. So here's some good news, okay? Next slide. The good news is we can walk with Jesus instead of living in fear and he does the heavy lifting. We can walk with Jesus instead of fear. It's possible. There is nothing in our lives that we actually need to be afraid of long-term. We can walk with Jesus instead of fear. And it's not on us to do it. He's the initiator. He initiates. I don't initiate. In this partnership, he is the one initiating towards me. I'm the responsive partner. He comes towards me. 
he first loved us. And First John, it says, we only love because he first loved us. So when I, I'm, I'm responding to someone else's leading rather than working and trying to make a way to be free from fear. And this is what the gospel says, man. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That's not what God has given us, is to walk in fear. He's given us the ability to be connected to power, power to overcome, and his love, and a way to think clearly. <laughs> in Colossians, it says, that, that's 2 Timothy. In Colossians, it says this, we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness, the dominion of fear. We've been rescued from it. Come on. You've been rescued from the dominion of fear and darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves, the kingdom of light. We've been rescued. Look, look at Romans 8. Romans 8 says this, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So we have received something. An exchange has taken place. The spirit of slavery, the spirit of fear has been taken off of my life. I am seated in Christ. I now have the spirit of adoption, where I cry, Daddy, help. John 10, 27. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. <clears throat> my sheep, this is Jesus, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This should just overwhelm us with security. We should feel an overwhelming sense of I'm safe. My dad's got me. It doesn't matter what I'm facing, I'm safe. No one can snatch me out of my father's hand. No one can snatch me out of Jesus' hand. We're his possession. We naturally hear his voice. We have eternal life right now, and we have radical security because we are Jesus's. So that's like the theology behind why we cannot live in fear. That's the truth that we need to meditate on, we need to declare, we need to believe, we need to embrace, we need to receive, we need to hear over and over and over. That's why we need Micah's ministry time he just did. That's why we need to not glaze over when Micah's up here ministering that we are in union with God so that that can get pillarized, solidified deep in our heart. We're like, oh, I'm loved. I'm brought back to center, I'm loved. But on a practical level, there are three ways that I address fear, okay? Two ways that I would say I respond to fear and one way that I resist living in fear. So these two ways that I um, respond to fear, what I'm talking about is what do I do when I'm experiencing fear in the moment? What are the top two things I do? The first thing is this. This is my, this is actually in order. It's not like I do number one more than number two, but here's number one something that we can do. Identify what we're feeling. Stop and identify what we're feeling. And then the, the um, therapeutic language for this is after you identify what you're feeling, you actually can self-regulate your emotions. 
after you've identified what's actually going on, you can soothe yourself. You can regulate what's going on, but it all starts with identifying what you're feeling. Look at Jesus' example in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't want to do this, God. Father, I don't want to do this. Let this cup pass. Not, I'm a bad dude. I'm going to go to the cross. <laughs> That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, men in my family don't feel fear. <laughs> That's not what he said, okay? He said, I don't want to do this. He sweat blood. He identified what he was actually feeling in the church. He was real with himself. If you don't identify it, you won't know how to resist it, and then you'll be driven by it. If you don't identify the problem, you won't know how to fight the problem, and then the problem will eat your lunch. So what I do is I try and identify what I'm feeling. Um, this week, I did this twice. Once, I was leaving the church to go to a meeting, and I had just been in so many meetings all morning and hitting with all kinds of things. Nothing really bad, but I was just feeling like in a frenzy in my mind. And I could tell I'm starting to get anxious and sad and feeling fearful and like, I don't want to do this anymore and like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm just feeling, starting to feel really bad. So I stopped in my car. I just stopped. That's the first step. Here's my four-step process, okay? Step one is you stop. Stop your body. Stop your mind. Literally, stop. Sit down. You sit down. <laughs> and you take some deep breaths. <sighs> That's what the first one's like for me. You, you stop, okay? You, you don't get on your phone. You purposefully don't talk to anybody. You purposely don't scroll. You purposely don't check your email. You purposely don't start. Just start driving. Just go to the next thing, you know? No, you stop. Fully, completely stop. Embody stopping. In your body, stop. Second thing, list off the emotions that you're feeling. I, I list them off. I list off every emotion I can think that I'm feeling. And I don't do a deep dive here. I'm not like trying to figure out jujitsu level identification of emotions. You know, I was just like, all right, I feel anxious. I feel like I'm in a frenzy. I've been going so fast. I'm a little scared about my sermon Sunday. I don't feel like I'm getting to prep enough. Oh, I'm, I feel a little bit of fear about just feeling bad. And I just list everything I feel like that. Just real quick. I mean, not really quick, but really just methodical. I don't like dwell on each emotion and try to understand it or know where it's coming from. Step three, I then acknowledge those emotions. I purposefully, I greet them. I say, hello, <laughs> you are here. I am feeling this. I'm really feeling this right now. This is real, I'm feeling this. It's like, kind of like, it's a, in a sense, I accept what's going on. I don't lay down like, this is reality now, but I'm just real, like this is what I'm feeling. And right about that point, I'm like envisioning Jesus sitting next to me. And I'm welcoming Jesus into the moment with me. He's here with me, Holy Spirit, you're here. I'm feeling all this. Well then after I've stopped, after I've listed off what I'm feeling, and after I've acknowledged it, I'm not fighting it, I'm acknowledging it, then I invite God into it. Then I say, Holy Spirit, fill me. I say, God, I need your help. 
I can't do this without you. I can't feel better without you. I can't do this day without you. I can't overcome this fear without you. And I start praying. Tell me, whatever, you know, like, I invite God into it at that point. But it's so easy just to go, okay, I'm feeling a little off. God, help me, help me, help me, help me. But man, I found it so valuable to stop. List off what you're feeling. Acknowledge it. Accept and acknowledge that you're feeling something and then invite God into it. So that's the first thing I do. Or that, that's one of the ways I handle fear. Another way I handle fear is instead of identifying what I'm feeling, I share what I'm feeling. I go to community and close friends, trusted confidants, people that I know love me, and I say, blah, <laughs> here's what's going on. I'm feeling this, this, this. You know, usually this comes in a, in a text to my wife or a text to like my parents or I have a, a bunch of bros that I'll shoot just like a two paragraph rant to, like, guys, this is what I'm feeling. Can you pray for me today? Encourage me, hit me with prophetic words. Tell me what you like about me. Like, I just need some support. I'm feeling stuff. But I get it out. I don't just, I don't just live with it. I, I share to others, hey, here's what I'm feeling. In Hebrews 10, 24, it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We need each other to not, to not live in fear. You can't not live in fear alone. You and the Holy Spirit and community is how you don't live in fear. In Galatians 6.2, Paul says this, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. We are supposed to support one another in our times of need, in our times of weakness, and in our times of fear. Jordan said, that the great poet Jordan Pelfrey said this, the individual is crucial, but perhaps we have overemphasized the me within the greater we. The individual is crucial, perhaps we have overemphasized the me within the greater we. He's saying we need each other. So what I do practically here is I just share what I'm feeling. I don't try and save face. I tell my parents or my wife or my friends exactly what I'm feeling. Embar my embarrassing fears, you know? Like that, you gotta be that real, otherwise this doesn't help. What's really beneath it? Not like the fear that you're not embarrassed of, but even the fear you're embarrassed of. And then what you, what you do is this thing called co-regulation. Other people encourage you and pour out love onto you and it helps you get back to normal. I'm not talking about codependency, where you can't be okay unless other people are okay. I'm talking about encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching, bearing one another's burdens. So really, what I've just listed is several spiritual disciplines, prayer, silence and solitude, community, confession. This is just all the stuff that, that Jesus left us to do to live a life where we could get free from fear. Now, the main way I cultivate peace and courage, the, the way that I resist living in fear is experiencing God's love. This is, the, this is the way that I, this is the thing I do when I'm not feeling fear to be the type of person that doesn't live in fear. To, to be the type of person that is so filled up with something else that, that fear can't get in, that fear can't infiltrate, that fear can't influence, and that's experiencing God's love. The big thing here is just having a deep personal value 
for the tangible encounter with God's presence. The, it's, it's not enough for Haya to be told that Wilson loves her, that daddy loves her. She needs to be held. Why would it be, if, if we need that from our earthly parents, why wouldn't God give that to us? Encounter with him where we feel his presence in our heart, on our body, whatever, that is to rewire us for the spirit of adoption away from slavery. So what this looks like just on a practical level is praying the prayer and, and imagining your heart opening while you pray it and just saying like, God, I need you. God, I wanna experience your love. I wanna experience your presence. And walking around with that prayer on your lips when we're in worship, let that be the opening prayers we go into worship. God, I want to experience you, I wanna feel you, I wanna know you. And in that, we'll be rewired to be people who walk in love rather than walk in fear. So let me pray for us to, to close. Um, we identify what we're feeling, we, we, we acknowledge what we're feeling, and we invite God into it, that's one way to handle fear. Another is we share with others, hey, I need help, I'm feeling fear, and we get ministry and love from others. And then finally, on the daily basis, we have a value and a prayer of God, I wanna encounter your love. I wanna encounter your presence. If we hang on to this stuff, we'll be the type of people who share the gospel from the roofs when people are being killed for sharing the gospel from the roofs. If we do this, we'll be the type of people that are so rooted that when our kids spill paint over the place, we don't scream at them. We're just like, okay, they're kids, you know? Like, I just want fear to be driven out of me. So Lord, will you do this? I just pray right now, just maybe take a deep breath really quick and put your hands on your lap like you're about to receive a gift. Just turn your heart towards, towards God. Open your body a little bit for a minute. Come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you. I'm asking you to come and minister Holy Spirit. I thank you for the ministry you are doing and have been doing. And right now, I just, I just pray, Lord, will you bring to mind places that we have partnered with fear? Show us where we've partnered with fear, Lord where we have a habit, or the spirit of fear maybe even, that demonic presence has a hold on us. Now if you feel like God's prompting you and he's speaking to you, will you just stand up? I wanna pray for you specifically. If you feel like God's bringing things to mind, like here's a place I live in fear, or here's a place that fear is getting me, just, just stand up, I wanna pray because God's moving on you specifically right now and the kingdom is hovering over you right now. The power of the age to come, the power of heaven is hovering over you right now. So kingdom, come, kingdom drop, in Jesus' name. I 
I release the love, the adoption of the Father to begin to fill you from head to toe. 